0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Patrick Roy Bates, a major in the British Army during World War II, later a pirate radio broadcaster and a self-made millionaire who imported rubber, owned a chain of barbershops and sold seaweed in New York, sought in 1967 to escape what he called the world's damn bureaucracy as he declared Sealand to be a sovereign nation. In his latest book, Dylan Taylor-Lehman takes us seven and a half miles off the coast of Essex, England in the North Sea, where Paddy Bates and his family established a micronation in international waters. Sealand, the true story of the world's most stubborn micronation and its eccentric royal family is published by Diversion Books and brings Dylan Taylor-Lehman to our show now. Welcome.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here don't you live in the foothills
0: of appalachia how did you come across the story the the principality of sealand
1: yeah that's right i'm i'm from Zanesville, ohio so just in the barely earliest foothills so that's a bit of a brag on my part but um i'm not even quite sure how i came across a story that for the first time i mean it's certainly been well over a decade ago uh that i Learned about it and I came about it. um, You know, if you read the book, you'll see that there's a a pretty strange exile government side story. And that was my first introduction. Um, And so that was a pretty uh, weird way to get involved with all this. But then I, of course, realized it was more about the Bates family and all their accomplishments over the decades. So that's really where, you know, what caught my interest and uh, prompted me to dive even deeper into this story. And it's a rather
0: incredible story, full of interpretations of British law, international intrigue, a number of armed invasions. Have I left anything out?
1: Um, well, let's see. The you know challenges to Internet law. There's uh, the Sealand flag on the top of Mount Everest. So, yeah, just the, okay. the side stories here are pretty endless for sure.
0: Now, Sealand is often called an island, but isn't it really a decommissioned and abandoned anti-aircraft gun platform that's a—that's not all that big, the size of two tennis courts?
1: Yeah, it's about uh, just over 5,000 square feet, and it's entirely man-made, and it's one of uh, what are known as the Monsell Sea Forts, which are uh, a series of forts built in the Thames Estuary during World War II. Uh, which were intended, of course, to defend against uh, incoming Nazi bombers and submarines. And they sat more or less abandoned following the resolution of World War II uh, until the Bates family and many other uh, enterprising people, you know, thought that they would serve a new purpose and began taking them over again in the early 1960s.
0: Can you just take them over? By the way, before we start, should we call him Roy or Patty Bates? Uh, What do you prefer?
1: Paddy Roy Bates does have kind of a more poetic ring to it, but uh, according to his son, Michael, everyone kind of, everyone who knew him just called him Roy. So yeah, Roy Bates will work. Okay, so uh, this also
0: involves the story of pirate radio stations. What led to the widespread creation of pirate radio stations in the UK in the 1960s? Uh, Were they going into competition with the BBC, which had a monopoly?
1: Yeah, kind of unbelievably uh, in the 1960s, actually from the founding of the BBC in the 20s up until the 1960s, they were the only licensed broadcaster in the UK. And so listeners were essentially at the mercy of whatever the BBC wanted to play. And they were known to play, you know, an hour or two of rock music here or there or commission their own bands to do uh, you know, fairly um, tepid interpretations of rock music on air. And so uh, a lot of these, yeah, d- DJs who just wanted to hear rock and roll music began to take over these forts or, um, y- you know, build boats outfitted, or sorry, outfit boats with uh, radio transmitting equipment and sail into international waters to broadcast. Um, Music, which was often from their own record collections, and so this phenomenon caught on with all the youngsters, and uh, the the enterprise just really took off from there and became a, a pretty Robin Hoodian, um, you know, pretty well regarded and celebrated era in uh, British history.
0: Well, actually, first it was Radio Luxembourg, which was broadcasting from Europe. Uh, then came these things, mostly boats, as you mentioned. Uh, some of them were pretty uh, popular uh, in the early sixties, Radio Caroline and Radio London. When Roy Bates started his pirate station, Radio Essex. Um, now what did he do? He, uh, how did he, uh, he didn't go to the, the Fort Ruff's tower where, uh, he created this country first, he went to another tower, uh, and that was a problem.
1: Yeah, so he went to uh, another one of these Monsell forts called Fort Knock John, which was three miles from British shoreline. Which that that designe- or that distance would you know play a big part in in why Sealand has developed in the way it has. Um, and yeah, I mean he kind of it was a totally seat of the pants operation. I mean hauling out their own equipment and lifting up with ropes, you know, building their own transmitting equipment uh eating you know endless uh stores of canned beans and things like that but you know all the djs were just along for the ride and and you know uh, not not only roy bay station but everyone really talked about what a just kind of revolutionary fun it was at the time so they had but no it was within kind
0: of in- but it was within three miles of the the main of the british mainland so it was not in international waters that meant that it was illegal right
1: yeah, so, so once um, the British government started finding and arresting radio DJs, uh, Roy, B- his turn came up and had to go to court. And as part of it, the prosecution, yes, they determined that this three—although three miles was the official designation, they determined this fort was just inside that distance. Mm-hmm. And so that, of course, prompted them to seek out somewhere a little further afield.
0: And how did he acquire the, the Fort Ruffs Tower? Um, Weren't there already pirate radio broadcasters there?
1: They definitely the, the forts made obvious sense for these offshore stations, and so there was a bit of back, back and forth that kind of established Roy Bates and his crew's reputation as um, pirates, essentially, because they definitely got into some fist fights, some uh, you know some scuffles out there that ultimately resulted in, in Roy and his crew maintaining ownership of the fort.
0: And uh, he got his equipment partly from uh, Americans, right? Uh, stuff that had been left behind. Uh,
1: so that—that uh, that I'm not quite sure about. I know that you know he used some old naval transmitting equipment, and again, sort of cobbled together their own, you know, a, a very DIY enterprise. I mean, I know one of the electrical wires was. Said to be just strung across precariously, and people had to make sure to to duck that lest they be, you know, electrocuted. He was the first to offer
0: 24-hour broadcasts. Uh, were they playing American rock mostly, or American and it, British rock? At this is the time of, of the Beatles and the Rolling right, Stones. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was a little bit of everything. I mean. Um, They, Roy, wasn't necessarily a fan of rock and roll music and called, uh, I think, the Rolling Stones, you heard a demo tape of theirs and called it, you know, rubbish. Uh, But yeah, American and English and British music, but they also, Radio Essex was also known as one of the first stations to really, um, you know, average take ads from local advertisers and deliver local news, whereas a lot of the other stations were a little bit more uh, national in scope and not quite as specific to that region. So that, that's kind of the niche that Radio Essex filled. So he was fined a uh, 100 pounds uh, for
0: illegal broadcasting, and uh, he then moved to the Fort Ruffshauer, Tower, uh, where uh, he, he began broadcasting for how long?
1: Well, the... They did move to Rust Tower, which was indisputably in international waters. It's about six and a half miles from, from British shorelines. Uh, and up at that point, the BBC had kind of acquiesced to public demand and started some other radio stations that did play rock and roll music. So the necessity uh, of a pirate station wasn't quite as pressing. So Roy, in turn, had this other fort and decided to just um, – you know, you did pursue some other enterprises. Yeah, the BBC
0: created Radio One, its own pop radio station in 1967, which I assume cut into the, the listenership of the, the pirate radio stations. Uh, so he decided to do other things. Wasn't, let's talk a bit about the family. Wasn't his wife Joan a beauty queen? How, how had they met?
1: Yeah, they met um, in 1948 at a local dance hall, and um, you know, as I write in the book, it was kind of like one of those scenes in the movies where they catch each other's eye, and the music gets all fuzzy, and they just immediately fall in love, and were married within six weeks. Uh, but yeah, I mean, she was she was a model and a, another from the area as well, and they essentially, you know, established their whirlwind romance right away and um, jump in full steam ahead to whatever you know, endeavors that they wanted to pursue. And, you know, Roy had it in his mind to lead a fairly unconventional life, and, and Joan was right there helping them out with it and, you know, certainly doing her fair share of the work as well.
0: What What had life been like for Roy and Joan in Essex before they moved to to the uh, the platform?
1: Uh, fortunately, I was able to talk to some people who actually knew them. Um, Roy and Joan are, unfortunately, since have long since passed away, but I mean, they were known as as very sociable, very, um, you know, always, he was always well-dressed. I mean, he was an ex-military man, so he sort of carried himself in that regard. Um, You know, they had high society aspirations. I mean, you know, their kids, horse riding lessons, they had a Bentley, all that kind of thing. But, um, you know, there's a, a story, I don't know how apocryphal or not this is, but Roy, you know, one day on a train to work, realized everyone was around him was wearing the same suit and hat and carrying a briefcase, and he realized he did not want to be part of that through his briefcase in the lake when he got off at his stop, and there they began a lot of the pursuits that you had mentioned uh, at the top of the program.
0: And they had two children, uh, a son, Michael, who plays a major role in the story, and, and a daughter, Penny. Um, right. So did they decide to, to just move to the platform uh what was it like when when they got there and when did they move there and how did they make yeah. it habitable
1: uh it was certainly uh an uphill battle in every sense of a word i mean their home base was in south end on sea which is in Essex, right on the thames estuary in southeastern england but um it was a a pretty crazy journey i mean they would have to take all their supplies by car to a bus stop and then walk it down a road to a, uh, a rowboat to go to their puttering old boat, which was left over from the war, and then a, a pretty lengthy journey out to sea, and then they would in turn have to haul all of this stuff on stuff up onto the fort. And so it was a very, very, very difficult process to make this fort habitable, which uh, already was, I mean you know, cold, windy, Uh, I mean, it's cement and steel, so it's certainly not, um, you know, a luxury accommodation, but over the months and years following um, taking over the fort, I mean, they, you know, outfitted it with the trappings of home and gradually made it, um, uh, I guess, a tolerable place to be.
0: Now, they were originally broadcasting as Radio Essex, but then they changed their name in October 1966 to Britain's Better Music Station, BBMS. Mm Uh, we, and that didn't last long. Why did they change the name, and why did they wind up going off the air on Christmas Day in, in 1966?
1: Well, the, the following the court case that determined that the original fort was well within British jurisdiction, um, that's when they moved out from Rust Tower and established what would become Sealand. But, uh, you know, as we had discussed, by that point, the BBC had um, expanded its the repertoire of music it played. And so that obviated the need for a new radio station. And so this BBMS actually didn't uh, end up getting off of the ground, but um, that it did provide the impetus to take over this new fort, even though they didn't uh, ultimately go through with that program or with that. Plan, rather.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. My guest is Dylan Taylor Lehman. His latest book is Sealand, the true story of the world's most stubborn micronation and its eccentric royal family. It's published by Diversion Books. So, okay, so he stops broadcasting, but then he decides to, uh, to declare the island, the principality of Sealand, a sovereign nation in 1967. What led to that decision?
1: Well, I I was fortunate enough to meet with his son, Michael, who explained to me that Roy was pretty put off by how doggedly the British government had gone after him for his radio enterprise, especially since he was a fairly celebrated war hero. And so although Roy and the family might not necessarily have had concrete ideas in mind for what wanted to come next, uh, they figured that since they had this location in international waters, uh, endowing it with statehood would, um, you know, serve whatever purpose came next, next pretty well. And so that, um, I guess, you know, was just kind of the logical next step. You know, it wasn't just something that they had acquired, but rather something that they had full control over as uh, sovereign rulers.
0: And was he planning to bring the station back or did he have other ideas for uh, this new principality of Sealand?
1: The the radio issue was was fairly that that had been over and done with that was out of the question I I think it was kind of unclear what he hoped would come next but um the, you know the thinking was to just set it up and then doubt with as much with as much uh, officialdom as could be possible for whatever it was that could become next and and Roy um, did. You know, actively pursue various uh, business endeavors that would take place on the fort and benefit from a location in international waters. So um, there are a few things brewing right away. Um, and at the very least, I mean, they started issuing stamps and coins and various yeah. other things to again, underscore um, their position as an independent entity out in sea.
0: Is there a legal process involved in declaring yourself a principality? And in this case, Roy Bates making himself the prince of the principality?
1: Uh, I mean, there, yeah, there's no real um, legal guidelines for—well, that's kind of part of the really complex part of the story, was because there, the fact that this fort was in international waters made its legal status fairly unclear and very— um, you know, it could be argued on paper certainly that he did have total control over it, and that that too would set the stage for um, some legal battles that would be forthcoming that would uh, it make this, um, you know, the legal status and the international status of the fort uh, even more complex. But on paper definitely, um, you know, he did a lot of research to see what um, – latitude he had to make these declarations. And on paper, it seemed like, yeah, he was certainly well within his rights to declare the sport to be his own country. The question, of course, was uh, who and what nations would uh, agree with those claims.
0: And whether the UN would uh, accept it. And sure. We'll get to that in a little <laughs> bit. But I mentioned invasions. So, and I mentioned Radio Caroline, which was a, a major pirate radio station. Ronan O'Reilly, is it? uh, along with a small group of men, try to storm the platform. Uh, what were they trying to do? Take it over and and establish a radio station of their own there?
1: Yeah, I mean the you know as mentioned, I mean the locations of these forts was kind of key to their. Um, Extra legal status uh, and you know being outside of British jurisdiction for broadcasting purposes, and so yeah, there really were some quite pitched battles to hold on to these forts, involving you know, uh, Molotov cocktails, gunfire, you know, boat and you know uh, boatloads of people, you know, hired hands from uh, the dock, the nearby docks, to come out and try to take it by force. So you know, I think that some of the violence that happened out there. Um, really also kind of forced the British government's hand to take these, um, you know, what was otherwise a fairly, um, you know, kind of lovable pirate radio enterprise and, you know, treat it a little more seriously. Well, the,
0: the battle uh, actually attracted the Royal Navy to Rush Towers, and when they came too close to Sealand, didn't Michael Bates fire warning uh, shots at them? Uh, oh, absolutely. So, because he said that they had entered what he claimed were sea lands, territorial waters.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that was, that's a pretty remarkable part of the story because it, you know, I think Michael was around 14 or 15 at the time and his dad had, you know, left uh, the decision about whether or not to to use gunfire up to him, which is a pretty, you know, heady responsibility for a teenager. But, um, you know, that too really, um, prompted the British government to take this whole situation more seriously because, um, you know, you can't have someone <laughs> shooting at boats out there. But again, the, you know, the family claimed it was in defense of their own territory, and that um, would lead to some court cases that would make the make their claims, depending on how you looked at it, make their claims a little more concrete. But at the same were, time, the British – sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say they were arrested and charged in, in,
0: uh, on weapons charges, but then the court threw out the case and you were getting to that, I guess.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that was, you know, I think that decision surprised even the Bates family. I mean, the, the judge ruled that, uh, because the fort was so far away from official British, uh, territorial waters that, you know, the, the British government really didn't, their authority didn't extend out to the fort. And, uh, you know, that really took the family by surprise and, you know, to this day is certainly cited as one of the kind of most important uh, moments in Sealand's history because it did suggest that, um, you know, not necessarily the Sealand was its own country, but at least it was independent from British authority.
0: Although, as as I understand it, uh, the, the boundaries of territorial waters have been extended more recently, which would... Uh complicate this situation. But as you say, Bates took the the judge's decision as a de facto recognition of his country. And then uh, seven years later, he issued a constitution, a flag, a national anthem, also started issuing passport stamps and, and, and sold nobility titles on the internet. Well, I guess he had to make a living
1: Yeah, I mean, and that was the idea from the beginning was to, you know, take this extraterritorial status that you had complete control over and use it to some, you know, financially beneficial ends. And it it wasn't until, you know, fairly recently with the advent of the Internet that it did start to become as profitable and self-sustaining as uh, Roy had envisioned. But, yeah, I mean, it definitely – there were definitely tons of – really interesting business experiments that took place on the fort, um, you know, that, that resulted directly from its um, unclear international status. And, and Brexit has brought new
0: funds and, and new people into the story.
1: Uh yeah, I mean definitely with uh, the whole Brexit controversy and you know other worldwide controversies like uh Trump's election in twenty sixteen, people certainly were petitioning the Bates family for Sealandic citizenship. Uh <laughs> they, they haven't been granting that quite uh regularly, but um, you know, as you mentioned, you can buy Sealandic titles from the government's website to help keep the enterprise afloat.
0: I love the the motto that they gave themselves a mare Libertas or from the sea, freedom.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it definitely encapsulates everything that they, they stood for.
0: And then there was another invasion. Uh, in 1978, a group led by a German businessman named Alexander Achenbach tried to take over Sealand. What were their motives? And, and there were Dutch people also involved in, in the att- attempted coup?
1: Yeah, in the early 1970s, the Bates family uh, struck up a partnership with these German and, and Dutch businessmen to um, just do something with the Ford, expand its footprint. I mean, you know, establish hotels, docking uh, docks for passing boats, that kind of thing. And initially, it was quite a productive partnership because um, all of these, they were very good about it writing to dignitaries of foreign governments to try to get recognition to the UN fundraising, all this stuff. Um, but the background of these characters would, uh, quickly come to light when, um, you know, they were involved with some other illegal enterprises unrelated to sea land, but this would all come to a head, uh, in 1978 when they took Michael hostage, when he was alone on the fort in an attempt to take over the fort for themselves.
0: And then, uh, Michael basin and, and others launched a counterattack uh, in the early uh, hours of the morning to recapture the, the the fort and he wound up holding the german some german and dutch men as prisoners um, all but one were released but didn't this lead to an international crisis of sorts
1: yeah i mean you know all uh, you know all action movie stuff aside, I mean, they repelled down ropes off of a helicopter with a shot. Oh, Michael had a shotgun tied around his neck with a piece of rope and they retook <laughs> the fort. But uh, yeah, so um, when they in turn held these uh, captors hostage, the German government was petitioning the British government to do something about this. But in a you know, kind of interesting turn of events, the British government said, you know, this is really outside of our control. And so, uh, I believe it was a member of the the local German embassy in the UK flew out to the fort to negotiate these prisoners' release, which again is a you know another um, kind of diplomatic event that the sealand the Sealanders used to underscore the fact that they are an independent entity, you know that it necessitated the involvement of uh, an official from a foreign government.
0: But Germany has denied that it was a de facto recognition of Sealand. Is Sealand officially recognized by any established sovereign state?
1: Um, by England, no. for example? <laughs> uh, it, it is not, although uh, throughout its history, there have been some overtures of recognition that are um, perhaps accidental from representatives of other governments, but its primary um, kind of supporters are, are governments of entities of similar similarly, uh, I guess, unofficial legal status or unofficial statehood status what's the u.n's position
0: on Sealand? has it had to decide on it
1: uh well there was a quote from an official uh who once said we have a nut file for applications <laughs> like this so you know they unfortunately have not extended uh recognition but you know as the world changes perhaps that that will change as well
0: well, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which has been in force since 1994, states artificial islands, installations and structures do not possess the status of islands. They have no territorial sea of their own and their presence does not affect the delimitation of the territorial sea, the exclusive economic zone or the continental shelf. And I'm I'm assuming that was their way of dealing with Sealand and anybody who wanted to create a similar micronation.
1: Yes. However, uh, supporters uh, of Sealand have also argued that, similar to other treaties, the treaty you mentioned doesn't have a retroactivity clause, which means that anything that was declared before that treaty went into effect uh, is not affected by the newer treaty, which means that perhaps it is the case that since Sealand was declared sovereign in 1967 that these claims preclude uh, that exclusion that you had just mentioned.
0: Although, as I said, uh, the now uh, territorial waters have been extended to the end of the continental shelf. So, uh, Sealand would be within Britain's territorial waters. Um, has that ever been resolved?
1: Um, not officially, although of course, the Sealand government in retaliation expanded their territorial waters, which now encompasses mm-hmm. part of England. So you know it's just it kind of at loggerheads in that respect. but um, you know, I think the British government today just kind of lets them do their thing because it's not really hurting anybody, so it's more of a just kind of a, a quirky, a quirky endeavor, you know, carried out by some, um, you know, kind of independent-minded Englishmen.
0: Although there are, there have been scams and illegal activities connected with it. Did the uh, the Bates family ever live on the island full time?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Michael Bates, who is now uh, sixty-seven, sixty-eight years old, said he estimates that he spent, you know, cumulative. Uh, about 20 years of his life cumulatively uh, on the fort, and Roy was very stubborn and would stay there for for weeks at a time, even into to old age. So I mean, he definitely, you know, very much took uh, Sealand seriously. And today. The fort is maintained by um, two full-time caretakers who alternate at the very least two-week shifts on the fort. So it, it, there definitely is someone out on the fort um, at any given time.
0: I mentioned some illegal activities. Haven't scam artists and others used Sealand for gain? For example, wasn't there a fake website selling fraudulent Sealandic documents and paperwork uh, that involved a lot of 80 people worldwide?
1: Oh, definitely. And I'll, I'll certainly let me point out first, uh, of course, that this all happened without the Sealandic royal family's involvement or consent or anything like that. So this was, you know, had nothing to do with them. But uh, yeah, a gang of international criminals seized on Sealand's uncertain um, extraterritorial status to to try to to do some money laundering, to register ships, to buy airplanes, to take out bank loans. Yeah, just a really fascinating spread of (laughs) criminal conspiracies based on Sealand. You're
0: listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Let's listen to the Sealand National Anthem. Before I get back to my guest, Dylan Taylor-Lehman, uh, I need to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We need all of our loyal listeners to step up right now and go to our website, give2wbai.org, or, or to call 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air during this terrible pandemic. Again, that number is 516 516- 620-3602, 516-620-3602, or go to our website, give to wbaiorg That's give, and then the number 2, wbai.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year and also spread out your own financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or bank account each month is to become a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy. Uh, So let me take this opportunity to thank all of our wonderful listeners who have become BAI buddies during this fun drive, listeners like Joseph Hughes of Elizabeth, New Jersey. Thanks, Joe, and and to everyone who's helping to keep the show coming uh, uh, to you. Joining me now is the executive producer of this show, Jesse Lent, uh, to tell you about a special offer to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy during today's show. Hi, Jesse.
2: Hi, Leonard. Yes, that is true. Anyone who signs up to become a a BAI buddy that's a sustaining member uh, by making a contribution of $10 or more a month in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, if you do that today, you will receive a free copy of the book that Leonard has been discussing, Sealand, the true story of the world's most stubborn micronation and its eccentric royal family by our guest the author dylan taylor lehman as our way of saying thank you for supporting the broadcast that we're bringing you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m with leonard lopate at large in order to do that you can go to the web Uh, our website is give to wbai.org that's give then the number two wbai.org we also have uh standing by, so to speak, if you call 516-620-3602, and uh, you can get a copy of this book, Sealand, The True Story of the World's Most Stubborn Micronation and Its Eccentric Royal Family. Now, Leonard, obviously, we've been doing uh, shows on all the myriad ways that the pandemic is affecting our life. We've done shows on uh, uh, social movements going on in the streets right now and hope to do a lot more on that. But today's show is really a nice kind of departure from everything that's happening right now. I think we all need an escape from time to time, no? But
0: it is a fascinating story, and we thought that our listeners might be interested in hearing it. And uh, I'm very happy to be talking with uh, Mr. Taylor Lehman about it you know I'll tell uh, you
2: I'll tell you one thing that was interesting to me was all of the radio history in yeah. this book you know just reading the press full disclosure I do not read every single book we do on the show I have not read Sealand and just you know preparing the show and reading the press I did uh, about a- a- I did not expect for there to be this really fascinating radio component back in the days when pirate broadcasters were actually on sort of of pirate ships in a way Mm -hmm. uh, off of the coast of the UK and other parts of Europe. Well, because because interestingly,
0: interestingly, public broadcasting in England, the BBC, is paid for by everyone, whether they listen to the, the station or watch the TV shows or not. Uh, they have to pay a license fee. We don't do that. We ask our listeners to come forward and support us because they believe in what we do. And they don't have to become BAI buddies although I think that's a it's a great way to support the station, also get this book, but they can you can just call in and and uh, offer any amount that you're comfortable with. It can be uh, $10 a month or more as you we do with the BAI buddies or it can be ten dollars for the year or a hundred dollars for the year, whatever level you're able to just show your Just a one-shot
2: deal is fine.
0: Yeah, please, and and if you yeah, are already a member part. and and you have to haven't renewed, how about renewing now? Um, we uh, we hope that you'll show your support for this show and for the station that brings it to you every weekday from one to two p.m. Uh, if if Leonard Low at large has been a part of your daily life, consider stepping up for listeners who are just discovering it and give them the gift of the hour of conversation, insight, and knowledge that we hope to bring you with each installment of this program. But we can only do it with the support of listeners like you. And Jesse,
2: one more time, how can they help? Yes, speaking of speaking of gifts, you know, this is, is something that would make a wonderful I'll gift. Get- yes, I've, I've been having trouble with the connection today for some reason. But yes, if you call uh, right now, 516-620-3602 or go to the web at give to WBAI.org. Give then the number two uh, WBAI.org, as we've been saying. That's a sustaining member for a monthly contribution of $10 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. You will receive a free copy of the book that Leonard has been discussing today with our guest, Dylan Taylor Lehman. That is Mr. Taylor Lehman's book, Sealand, the true story of the world's most stubborn micronation and its eccentric royal family. That will be sent to you if you become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. But as Leonard was saying, whatever level you're able to contribute, in this complicated time for all of us. Oops. I mean, really every single contribution is keeping the lights on here. So it seems like we're having some some uh, connection problems, but if you can still hear me, the number is 516-620-3602. The web is give to WBAI.org. And from all of us at the show and the station, thank you very much.
0: And I'm going to go back to my guest, Dylan. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you interviewed p- people involved, including family members. Uh, what was their response? Uh, uh, were they happy to talk about this? Did, <laughs> were there things that you didn't know about because they never made it into the
1: news stories? Oh, absolutely! And let me give a shout out here to Prince Michael's book. Uh, they, the Sealanders, self-published his own autobiography in 2015. It's called "Holding the Fort," and that's um, you know kind of a first-hand account of what it's like to grow up doing what they did. And uh, you know, I kind of framed my book as a, a journalistic counterpart to Michael's first-person account. So check that out for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, initially because they had this book out, they were a little wary of me. Uh, Co-opting their story, but um, you know, since I kind of flesh out some of the other context surrounding the fourth, um, you know, they were ultimately happy to work with me, and it was definitely great getting some uh, the inside scoop on all of this because you know, after having researched it for so long, I had a pretty good understanding of you know all the events that were discussed in public, and being able to get um, you know some more to flesh out those stories a little more, just get some. Um, inside information was really a, a special experience, and I definitely appreciated them um, inviting me to into their houses and, and spending so much time telling me about uh, telling me all of this and answering all of my no doubt irritating at times questions.
0: Is Prince Michael still living on the island? Well, or no, I'm calling it an island on whatever the platform?
1: No, he um, he and his two sons, who were in their early thirties, um, for their they run a cockle fishing business. So they they harvest some edible mollusks uh, off the shores of where they live. So they're you know essentially doing that full time, um, and they all live uh, in the UK at this point. But do go out to sea land, you know, for various special events or to do you know help with the upkeep and that sort of thing.
0: It, right now, Sealand is largely financed through their online shopping mall, which is run by the Bates family, although on the mainland. Uh, and and the, the mall's merchandise is priced not in Sealand dollars, but in British pounds, sterling. Obviously, uh, people don't have Sealand dollars. So they sell mugs for a little under 10 pounds, uh, uh, titles of nobility for around 30 pounds, uh, and and um, they also rent space for offshore data storage so uh, it's a, it's a it's a nice business and it, it seems to have inspired others didn't uh, a group um, create a nonprofit organization called the seasteading Institute in 2008 what's that all about
1: yeah I mean that that's not um, you know related to the sea landers but it's certainly influenced by them and that is um, kind of a theoretical, uh, although they have been attempting some some physical um, construction, but it's it's playing with the idea of building floating cities out at sea that would be able to exist in international waters according to their own rules. And the idea being that these different types of communities would spring up governed by you know, the principles favored by their founders, um, and they would be free to kind of conduct business as they see fit in international waters in, um, you know, city-sized floating enclaves. And so that's, yeah, I mean, they've they attempted some of these, again, physical constructions, but I mean, as you can probably imagine, that's a pretty humongous undertaking. And so that's um, still in the works, but yeah, definitely building on the idea of what kind of society is possible um, out, out at sea.
0: As I understand it, there's now just a, a full-time guard who uh, lives there as the only permanent resident of Sealand. Why did the, the family eventually return to the mainland?
1: I mean, it, it's certainly very difficult to live out there. I mean, the only way up um, onto or off of the fort is a, a mechanical winch that has to be operated by somebody on the fort or by helicopter if you can afford it. And so once you're out there, uh, you're out there. I mean, you know, everything has to be imported. uh, And although it can be quite peaceful and fun to stay there, I mean, it's also you're essentially in uh, a house in the middle of the sea. So, you know, if you're not one for um, isolation like that, it could be a little bit trying for sure. Hasn't the title of Prince of
0: Sealand been passed on now to the grandson of Roy and Joan Bates?
1: Yeah, um, so Prince Michael is is effectively stepped back, although he is, you know, does still conduct interviews and kind of directs the direction of the country. But uh, a lot of the Prince uh,
0: Regent now.
1: Right, right. A lot of the promotional stuff and, uh, you know, the upkeep is is done by his Michael's sons, uh, Liam and James, who, as you mentioned, are Roy's grandsons. And they're they're the ones that, um, you know, being millennials who have kind of helped propel. Land into the the internet age, and that's facilitated the sales of these uh, titles and, you know, a pretty charming presence on social media. You know, there's like footage of them uh, hauling <laughs> a McDonald's takeout order up to the platform or decorating it for Halloween and just, you know, kind of having fun with the whole history while also, um, you know, of course, taking seriously its legacy and everything that it does stand for today.
0: Roy died of Alzheimer's in two thousand and twelve, uh, back in Essex. What about uh, Joan? When did she die?
1: Uh, J- Joan passed away from natural causes in twenty sixteen.
0: Uh-huh. So uh, now it's all it's all been inherited by uh, Michael and and the, the what well, what happened to their daughter?
1: Uh, Penny, um, who's now 70, I was fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with her. um, And she, you know, obviously is really appreciative of the unconventional childhood she had. um, But, you know, after spending weeks at a time stranded out there as a youngster, you know, she quickly realized that this wasn't the life for her. And so she kind of divested her, um, dealing with, with with the family project and went her own way. And now she operates and uh, she's an esthetician. operates a, a beauty clinic in Essex. But um, yeah, I mean it was just not not a life she, she wanted to lead, and so she kind of stopped being involved with uh, the running of the fort in the seven, in the late seventies.
0: I'm assuming there are many unclaimed plots of land like Sealand around England and and throughout the world, tiny islands and international waters. Um, Could any of them, these unclaimed plots of land, be turned into micronations like Sealand or have they all been claimed by now?
1: That's a pretty good question, because um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the the treaties that have been signed do now t- take into account um, kind of obscure islands or outcroppings or man-made structures uh, that do clamp down on people claiming them as their own. Um, there is there are here and there a few territories, um some on land that are either disputed by neighboring countries or, in the case uh, of an area in Africa, the way that two maps were redrawn, um, both countries accidentally excluded <laughs> this little uh, patch of land, and so that um, still today is officially unclaimed. Um, but, I mean, certainly in today's world, it's increasingly difficult to find somewhere, especially relatively close to shore, that isn't um, you know claimed by whoever is close, most close by to it. <laughs>
0: You, know, you write for narratively, and most of the stories uh, have been about super subcultures like uh, Sealand, but you've also written about the, the band of people who search for Sasquatch. Uh, what is it about <laughs> these subcultures that appeals to you?
1: Uh, I, I just really, I mean, I really like the fact that, you know, people are living life on their own terms, and I, I certainly like diving into... Um, you know whether it's Bigfoot hunters or semi truck thieves or uh, you know the history of the Spanish tortilla. I just really like learning the backstories of stuff that I don't know a whole lot about, and certainly talking to people who are very invested in these in these things is it's always refreshing to see that kind of passion. And so I just I simply like learning about stuff and. You know, being able to to write about it just allows me to pursue it um, in even more depth and just satisfy my own curiosity. And it's fortunately other people seem to think that uh, some of the stuff I write about is interesting too. And that's just given me license to check out all kinds of interesting things.
0: This past January, you wrote a piece for Narrative Lee that strikes me as having some significance these days about corruption in the Florida Supreme Court in the 1970s. Uh, what was happening there, and what was the most shocking aspect of that story for you?
1: Uh, I was reading a book about um, called Among the Lowest of the Dead about the country's attempts to reinstitute the, the death penalty, and there was a passing, and Florida being kind of the battleground for that, and there was a passing mention in that book about how at one point uh, the majority of Florida Supreme Court justices were under investigation and facing jail time all essentially at the same time. And I, you know, that, of course, struck me and I looked into it more. And, yeah, it was just just unbelievably rife with corruption. And, um, yeah, certainly, the, you know, three justices were being investigated at once and, um for fairly serious charges, and so that that as you mentioned was definitely relevant to today's analysis of to today's political climate and um, you know scrutiny people are paying to politicians.
0: The the corruption was in the Florida State Supreme Court. Uh, why there uh, aren't uh, aren't uh, Supreme Court justices appointed by the governor with the consent of the the state
1: legislature? Uh, well, the, when all this corruption came to light, that that upended the process by which um, Supreme Court justices uh, get into office, because at the time they campaigned as as any politician would, and so they were certainly open to influence by you know businesses or organizations or whoever it was you know that wanted them on the court, and so. Um, You know, just coming from that sort of environment, that that level of corruption and then pandering to their supporters just kind of led them down some pretty dark, although comically corrupt paths.
0: And now Florida is uh, the epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic, worse than even New York at its worst. And New York is a much bigger state. Uh, do you see any links, or is this just a coincidence? Are there any enduring effects of of the uh, the, the history of of Florida's judicial system on on the current situation in Florida?
1: I mean, uh, from what I understand, looking over the the history of Florida Supreme Court, I mean, it, it seemed like there was you know following the following these justices being exposed, sort of a a, a few years of you know, reinvigorated, um, you know, a reinvigorated sense of integrity and wanting to do justice, you know, to the public. But I think just over time, just as you can imagine, you know, influence crept back in. And so I, although I can't speak for the political climate in Florida today, I mean, I imagine some of those similar, um, you know, that, that influences at play and, you know, has led to the things being the way that they are. If I wanted
0: uh, to purchase a, a noble title from Sealand,
1: mm-hmm. is there a
0: website I would go to?
1: Yeah, their, the official Sealand website is sealandgov.org, uh, and you can buy yeah everything from uh, titles that run you know fifty dollars up to I think a barony. A or Maybe it's a lordship is you know up to eight hundred dollars, oh. so but again, all of that helps to keep Sealand afloat
0: well, it doesn't have to stay afloat. it's on these uh, uh so it's to on these sure, concrete sure. pillars aren't they isn't it yeah. so um, yeah,
1: absolutely
0: is there any pirate radio in England anymore or is that totally gone and is Radio Luxembourg still broadcasting? do you know
1: i I think that. Radio Caroline still is in existence, um, although you know I don't think it has to to operate in a, the piratical way that it did before. But um, you know I'm sure there are certainly people who are running uh, radio stations under the radar. Though I guess with the internet today, that you know the necessity of of doing that isn't quite as um, quite as intense. I mean, I'm sure you can run a program without a whole lot of oversight, but on the internet, I mean.
0: Well, one of the big differences between uh, the British situation and ours is the BBC doesn't run commercials, but the, the uh, these independent radio stations were able to take ads. In this country, a station like BAI doesn't run commercials, but uh, American broadcasting is pretty much run on advertising.
1: Yeah, and that know. was kind of... I don't of a, know if you see
0: an irony there.
1: Well, and that was kind of the original... Something I found admirable about the founding of the BBC, that it was d- designed to to be free of the... What, what did they call it? Uh, I, they had a pretty... Uh, good insult for the, you know, intrusions of commercial advertising as in radio in the U.S. So I thought, you know, initially that that um, that efforts to do that were pretty admirable for sure.
0: I want to thank you so much for being on our show today. It's been a lot of fun talking with you. Dylan Taylor Lehman, his book Sealand, the true story of the world's most stubborn micronation and its eccentric royal family from Diversion Books. Have you found another uh, eccentric story to tell?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, I lived in El Paso, Texas for a while and got to know and become friendly with a private eye there named J.J. Arms, who uh, is now, he's about to be 88 years old. He's been a practicing private eye for over 60 years, and he blew his hands off of dynamite when he was a kid, and so he has two hooks for hands, but that has really helped him uh, you know, craft this larger than life reputation for himself and get himself involved in all kinds of wild capers. So I'm working on a, a biography of him and, and, and a deep look at some of uh, his, you know, the interesting life he's led and some of the cases that he's worked on.
0: Well, thank you so much for being on our show. And oh, that absolutely. Brings us-
1: this is a lot of fun. Thank you very much.
0: And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer, Kate Guan Allison, who prepared today's interview. If you're just discovering this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast, and you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, org or .com, I think in that case. Don't forget to follow our show pages on Facebook and Twitter. And, and if you'd like to reach me directly, you can write me at Lopate at wbai.org. As I mentioned before, WBAI is in a very difficult position because of the pandemic. So if you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews that we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., please go right now to our website, give2wbai.org. That's given the number to wbai.org or call 516 620 3602 help keep community radio alive in the New York metropolitan area. And We hope you'll join us tomorrow when one of our regular contributors to this show, Pete Morosky, will discuss summer gardening in the age of COVID-19. Uh, you can um, email me with, at letitlopate at wbai.org with any gardening questions you have for Pete, because we can't take calls these days. I'll do my best to work them into the show. Again, that email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. And we'll see you tomorrow.